Amen. Before we um, get into the word today, I, I, something was stirring in my soul during worship, and I want to just point it out to you, okay? Um, because I heard our worship leader say the word, rest, church. And that was a, I'm not sure what was on his heart. I think something was stirring there. We didn't talk about this. And I didn't know what that meant I was supposed to do, so I just started listening to the Lord and watching around, and we started singing, singing this song about resting in the Lord. And then I watched our drummer, Peter. I don't mean to embarrass wherever Peter is sitting. Um, but I watched our drummer, and his eyes were closed, and while I was singing about resting, I couldn't hardly see his hands. They were doing this thing really, 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 really fast, and his legs were going. So... I wanted to know, and I caught him coming off after worship, I, and I, I said to him, what was going on in your heart when you play up there? Is it frenetic inside that cage, or are you resting in the spirit? And it was a combination of things that he told me, but essentially, in spite of the fact that his motions were a blur, there was rest in his soul about something about the king. But I, 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 I think he sensed and I sense that there are also all kinds of issues that came in the doors, perched on shoulders and hearts. And to say, rest in the Lord, is a great direction from the Lord, and I think we blew, blew past it maybe a little quicker than, than the Lord wanted to. So I just want to take just a moment and, of ministry time and let the Holy Spirit do, uh, I think, what is maybe an, an, an unfinished work from those moments. Here's what I mean by that. You can have all kinds of demands on your life and busyness, and that's part of life. You just got to work through sometimes, right? Wouldn't you agree? Sometimes you're just busy. You got busy seasons, and uh, that's not necessarily evil. It's what it is. Yet the presence and the peace of the Lord can reside in your soul at the same time. Lisa and I sat with uh, Eric and Lori with uh, someone in the hospital last night who's got all kinds of stuff going on. It's hard it's painful, it's difficult, but there could be the peace of the Lord at the same time. Whatever you carried in with you today, the Lord wants to rest in your soul. And the presence of the King will make a difference in your circumstances. So would you um, rest for just a moment and let me pray over you? And um, would you receive what it is that the King wants to maybe do for you today? God, thank you, Lord, that there is no circumstance in our life that you do not care about. There's no circumstance in our life that has taken you by surprise. Psalm 139 says, you knew me while I was being knitted together in my mother's womb, by you, of course, and that you knew all of my days before there was one of them. So Lord, would you um, reassure hearts today that maybe are feeling frenetic, that maybe do feel pressured, that maybe do feel the concerns about tomorrow and what's going to happen at work or what's going to happen at school and what's going to happen in some relationship and what if, what if this? What if that? Lord, I just, I just pray that there would be a, a sense of rising faith and trust and restful peace in our souls because the king of the universe is our God. And so, Lord, would you visit us, Lord, with healing and with encouragement and with life and with resolution, and we choose, Lord, to sit in the restful place with our king. In Jesus' name, if you agree with that prayer, say amen. 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 Okay. Good deal. Okay, so... Here's a proverb for the day. You get two verses today. Um, proverb 30, verses 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He's a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. 
So Lord, as we get into your word today, speak to us, Lord. I pray, God, that what the Spirit wants to place into hearts will land and everything else will blow away like so much chaff. In Jesus' name, amen. About 50 years ago, a particularly famous historian, guy's name was Will Durant, he wrote, um, he and his wife wrote some uh, pretty notable historical books, and he got the Pulitzer Prize and a bunch of things, but he, anyway, he wrote um, several things, and he made this calculation that was, in, it was published about 50 years ago, and he made this statement fr from his book, Lessons of History, Will Durant. In the last 3,421 years of recorded history, so add 50 to that now, um, only 268 have seen no war. So recorded history for, let's just say, 3,500 years. There have been about 250 years with no war in, in recorded history that anywhere on the earth. That's in the last nearly 3,500 years. That's just, you know, 92% of recorded history has been a time of war and conflict with, without peace. However, the constant cry in people's heart is about peace. If you notice that, peace on earth. And, and if, if it would be possible, let's figure out a way to govern and build a utopia. Um, the philosopher Plato talked about that. Um, in some of his writings, uh, he had the, the terms that he used was something called ideal polis. He called it in his writing, The Republic. He said, people would only see peace if they were being ruled by philosophers. Interesting, but his, his point was that those who had studied and so forth, well, they should rule, and that's how we'll find peace. The Roman government attempted that and, um, and, and kind of tried to capture it, and they kind of got a hold of something for a couple of decades. Is a, a season called the Pax Romanus, the Roman peace, and it, 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 it eventually came to an end too, and it came to an end due to greed and the desire for power and control. Peace, peace was elusive. The, the British, who ruled much of the world for a period of time, had, had one too. And that, that time was called the Pax Britannica. And um, you know, they, 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 they had colonies all over the earth. And, and they, were, they were trying to promote financial security and uh, growth, but it didn't really last. Back in the year about 1516, a guy named Sir Thomas More wrote a book called Utopia. And it was about this island where... Um, it had the perfect legal system and the perfect economic state. Um, it was perfect, all this perfect stuff. It's perfect place to live, utopia. And we've always dreamed of that. Guy named Karl Marx, you've heard of him, who believed that uh, if we could eliminate the distinctions of class, if we could just eliminate class distinctions, every social problem would be fixed. A lot of people have come up with different ways to do this. In fact, today the cry continues, and, and there are a lot of bumper stickers about peace. <laughs> I got to think about bumper stickers. I mean, I, don't, I wouldn't want to put one on my car mostly because, you know, I think a car should be kept clean and not with stickers. But sometimes they're entertaining. And, but there's all kinds of bumper stickers out there about peace. And in fact, I went to a website this week to see what kind of bumper stickers I could get for peace. And, um, you know, have you seen, you've seen, the most common one you see is visualize world peace, right? You probably remember that phrase, visualize world peace. If we just visualize it, I don't know, this kind of makes me chuckle. Um, and, then, and then somebody took that and they extrapolated it and it said visualize world peas, right? Put them in the blender. Are you with me? Come on. 
<laughs> and, and, and it, and it, and it kind of goes from there. But anyway, this website I went to had over 1,100 different uh, bumper stickers, and this was my favorite one. I wasted a lot of time looking at bumper stickers. <laughs> Come on. That's a good one. <laughs> Give peace a chance. Okay. Peace is just this human cry. Peace on earth. And a lot of politicians have triggered on that. A lot of them have. And you will hear politicians promise peace, and there have been some notable politicians in the past who have made exorbitant claims, and they've used biblical and theological terms in, in, their, in their promotions of peace. Another, one, one guy was named you know, Adolf Hitler with his Imperial Reich, you know, which he, here's what he said. He said, it will cover the whole earth and last a thousand years. What a terrible thing that would have been. Mao Zedong, a one-time dictator of China, said that his, that, that his revolution would dominate the world a thousand years. That's a tri trigger phrase, that thousand years. And um, I mean, just imagine, just imagine if you can for a minute, a world of peace where it's perfect, th th there's per the perfect law and the perfect peace and the perfect order and perfect justice and everything's always fair and um, sin is dealt with immediately and all politicians are saints. <laughs> okay. <laughs> See, you're going to be a tough crowd today. Just imagine that. Imagine that whole thing. Politicians are saints. It's like, okay, I mean, but imagine a, per a world where if a person dies, let's say at age 11, or uh, excuse me, at age 100, pick a number. Pick a, they, they die at, a, at 100. They're considered an infant. Oh, they went so young. 100. Consider a world where kids can play in a pit with snakes and not get hurt. Imagine a world where the snakes wouldn't get hurt by the kids, too. Imagine that. Imagine a world where food is overabundant. There's plenty of food. Nobody starves. Even though the population has grown, there's plenty of food. All of that, you know, to us, to you and me, it sounds like pure fiction, right? It does. It just sounds like a fairy tale to most people. But, but those who have actually read their Bible and study it know that that's exactly what the Bible does promise. It does promise that. And actually, that and, and, and better. And it's going to be for a thousand years when Christ rules upon the earth. A thousand years. And it's easy to see that if that, when that is going to happen, the earth is going to have to go through some pretty major uh, transformations and extreme makeovers. For about the last 10, 10 or 11 weeks, I think we've been um, looking through the, the, the Bible passages and talking about eternity. We've been following um, the pathway of a Christian. What happens to a Christian the moment of death, um, about as they enter the portals of heaven, we've looked at uh, their reunion with other believers, we've looked at the resurrection of our physical bodies, we've talked about the capabilities of those bodies, we've talked about the throne room, we've talked about the judgment seat of Christ, and now we're going to come and we're going to spend a little time talking about a phase of heaven that most Christians don't even really think about. Most of, most of you probably think, well, you die, you go to heaven, you get your harp, you sing in a cloud, and you do that forever and ever and a thousand of years. And unless you've read through um, or you've been taught what Scripture says about heaven, um, that's, that's what a lot of people believe. And... Um, that's sort of the idea that goes through people's minds. There were two Christians having a conversation, and the first one said, well, I've got a one-way to ticket. 
one-way ticket to heaven, and when I go, I am never coming back. And the other Christian said, well, hey, I've, um, you know, you're going to miss an awful lot then because I've got a return ticket. I'm going to go to heaven, see Jesus in glory, then come back in power with him and help rule and reign with him. And it's the second Christian who had the theology correct, in my view. And we're going to talk about that this morning. Heaven is not going to be a place where you're sitting on a cloud and singing for thousands and millions of years. Heaven is multifaceted. There are different structures. There are different phases to it. And Revelation chapter 20 introduces a phase called the millennium. And um, I think this is one of the most important chapters in the entire Word of God. I believe that. And we'll talk about why, why in a minute. John Walvoord, who... Um, you, may, you probably don't know the name, but he, he taught the subject of prophecy for 50 years. He was the president for 34 years of Dallas Theological Seminary. Here's his comment about Rev 20. He said, there are few verses in the Bible that are more crucial to the interpretation of the Bible as a whole than the opening verses of Revelation chapter 20. Lisa and I like to go to Teton National Park. And between Teton and Yellowstone Park, which are mostly Wyoming, um, there's a large wilderness area, and if you walk back in there 20 miles, which um, it's a ways back in there, there's a place, uh, kind of a, I think I've talked about it here before, it's called the parting of the waters, where there's a stream, and the stream comes down a hill, and it hits this marshy area, and from that marshy area, th there's a literal place in the stream, and it's no wider than from here to that wall, where this little stream comes along, and it splits, and it literally splits. And some of it goes into the Atlantic Ocean eventually, and some of it goes into the Pacific Ocean. It's called the parting of the waters. And um, I believe that Revelation 20 is that for everyone who encounters it. I believe that every person who gets there and reads that, they, they have a parting of the waters. And I'm going to talk about what happens. But So you're going to read this, and in your mind, you are going to make a decision. You will make a decision with your mind and your heart, and there will be a parting of the water. So we'll come to that in a minute. And, and I, I think, I, I think the reason, part of the reason that, um, that this is the most crucial, or one of the most crucial for interpretation is, is that because it, it tells us about the climax of the Earth's history. And once this phase ends, everything that we know about the Earth ends. It's the climax. It's the culmination. So let's look at the first few verses uh, first seven, and then we'll go back and drive, uh, dig down a little bit. Um, Revelation 20, starting in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. This is an angel. It's got a lot of authority, the key to the bottomless pit. Two, he, he laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him a thousand years. Okay, stop right now. Most of the time, or much of the time, I think, when, when Christians get into the book of Revelation, they can see a sentence like this, and their eyes kind of roll in the back of their head, and they go, whoa, 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 whoa. The dragon, the serpent of old, who's the devil and Satan, and we hear all of these terms, and we think, okay, there's all kinds of symbology going on here. What, I don't, what am I doing here? Let's just put this into today's terms. If I was to say to you the word quarterback, and I said the term Seahawk, and I said the term Russell Wilson, you would understand I was talking about the same person with different labels. Okay? Okay, so don't be blown out by these different labels. So it's that simple. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan. 
Okay, some different labels for the same person and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Apparently that's one of the things he does is deceive the nations. Till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones and they sat on them and and judgment was committed to them. Now, let me remind you, this is Revelation 20. By the time you get to this, you've read 19 other chapters. And so some of these things that are in here are referring to stuff that was before. Don't get bogged down by that. And I saw the thrones and, and, and people judged commitment to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not rise again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. And when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Now, first thing I want you to notice here um, is this repeated references to um, what is commonly called in the church the kingdom age. Okay, the kingdom age. The kingdom age refers to this thousand years that we're reading about. And notice the extent of it. It's worldwide. The four corners of the earth are involved, and it lasts a thousand years. Six times in these seven verses is that little precise phrase: one thousand years, a 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 thousand years. Was that six? It was. A, it, it's in here over and over. It's that's the extent of it. It's commonly called the millennium. And I think a lot of believers don't have as good a handle on this as they could or should. Revelation 20 um, does kind of give us a, a basic, I just would call it a basic outline, but not a whole lot of information. It's, it's kind of minimal here. And um, the character and the nature of that time is really not fleshed out in this little passage. But there are hundreds of other verses in Scripture that um, talk about the kingdom age. And so we read here, though, that it lasts a thousand years, that Satan is bound, and a few other details that we'll talk about in future weeks. And so throughout the Bible, this millennium, this kingdom age, is, is given lots of different titles. Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is talking about it, and he says, Assuredly, I say to you that in the, re- the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of glory, the, the original language here is, is, is where he, Jesus says the, the regeneration, the original language is, it means the new Genesis. Another example is um, Acts 3, verse 19. The kingdom age is called the times of refreshing. Some translations say the seasons of refreshing. Acts 3, 21 says the time of the restoration of all things. Ephesians 1, Paul describes it as the dispensation of the fullness of the times. Lots of different ways to describe it. They're all talking about this millennium. And so here's a kind of a quick... Bottom line description, the earth at this point will have undergone massive change, topographical, uh, topographic change, geological change, climatic change, and um, it sounds like at this point um, the earth will, will resemble the original design of the earth in the Garden of Eden. Sounds like it. Just try to imagine it with me if you can. I mean, <laughs> I love to go outdoors. I love the mountains. I love bicycling. It doesn't look like it, but I, I just there's something about being out there, and I, I love that. And and you know here we are going to be Christians in our resurrected, glorified bodies. There's no going to be no aches, no complaints. 
for a thousand years, and um, the earth recreated like it was just kind of been changed, kind of like it was intended from the beginning, the millennium. But there's something about this term, the millennium, that kind of gets tweaked inside of people. I don't know if you've noticed it or not, but um, it seems that, well, I haven't been around every time there's been a thousand-year mark on the calendar, but I just, I just lived through one, as did you, and if you look at history, there's some previous ones, and when those calendar turnovers happened, people kind of wigged. Do you notice that? I mean, remember just before the year 2000, there was um, all this Y2K, Y2K talk, okay? The little microchip in your lawnmower doesn't have enough digits in it, so we don't know if your lawnmower is going to sneak in and steal your bread or something, you know? We don't know what's going to happen, and everything could break down. The end of life as we know it, we won't be able to watch Friends on video anymore. <laughs> I mean, the computers, you know, life, you know, da, da. okay, and, and it's not that uncommon. Um, an article from Psychology Today was talking about the year 1000, and um, it, it said this, it said, Legend has it that at midnight on January 1 of 1000, the entire population of Iceland converted en masse, uh, en masse to Christianity in the belief that they were about to experience the apocalypse. At the same time, in Rome, an awful lot of people thought the end of the world was coming, and they prepared themselves in all kinds of ways. They, they, they started giving away all their possessions. They started doing penance. They were wearing sackcloth and ashes. Okay, well, 1000 came and went. I mean, the very word... Millennium, this completion of 10 centuries, it, it, it evokes, you know, I used to get all excited when, when my 62 Chevy got to 99,999. I thought, here it comes. And once I got to zeros on my odometer, I just wanted to park the thing. <laughs> Isn't that weird? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to order in the church, ushers. There's a woman in the front row. Cute one. <laughs> anyway, okay. Okay, when I say things like that, you're supposed to look at her and watch for her reaction. <laughs> okay, I got the microphone. Okay, so, um, um, lost my mind. People just do weird things when you get to the millennium. I mean, you know, and, and there was all kinds of other things that were coming. As we got close, people started using the millennium as a target date. All kinds of businesses and organizations. They said, by the year 2000. I mean, um, by the year 2000, we're going to end world hunger. By the year 2000, we're going to be drug-free society. By the year 2000, you know, we'll find a cure to cancer. By the way, in the millennium, all of that will be true. Anyway. So uh, the discussion that we have here in Revelation 20 is only given in summary terms. But if we were to study all that the word of God says about that time, we'd be on it for months. And um, I, think, I think here's the thing I want to point out to you about this passage. I believe that Revelation chapter 20 is probably the most hotly contested passage in all of Scripture. And it's just a theological battleground. And here, I'm going to tell you now, what are, here are what, what the battle lines are. Are we to take Revela uh, Revelation chapter 20 symbolically, allegorically, spiritually, or is this to be taken literally? We're now standing at the parting of the waters. Every person stands there. Is this passage describing literal events in our future? That question forms an absolute theological dividing line. Um, 
And I, I believe that it's, it has vital consequences for the walk of, of every Christian, where they go on that topic. And uh, so I want to explore that a little bit. You know, this, this, th- these verses mention this period of time, this thousand years, six times in seven verses, which is very, very specific. And here are the three main prevailing viewpoints about the millennium that are out there. First one is the pre-millennial view. Um, simply stated, Jesus Christ will return to the earth before the millennium. He's going to come back and set up his kingdom. We believe, I, I believe our view here is that um, we believe in the personal bodily and glorious return of Jesus Christ to the earth. He's going to set up his throne. He's going to roll, rule over the whole earth from uh, literally from Jerusalem on the throne of King David for a thousand years. Now, if you read your Bible without any other books and commentaries, simply, plainly, literally, straightforward, you will have a premillennial view. Even people opposed to this viewpoint will agree with that, that if all you do is read what it says, you come out with a premillennial view. Okay. So um, a plain rendering will just leave you with that interpretation. So the premillennial view was the dominant view of the early church. In fact, it's hard to find any other view uh, or interpretation of this um, until the year AD 190. The apostles believed in a premillennial view. Um, the, the post-apostolic fathers believed in a premillennial view, and they wrote about it. It's just the dominant view of the early church. Around the year 190 AD, a group of, of scholars in Alexandria, Egypt, got together at a, a theological school, and they made a decision and a de- determination. We cannot take the Bible literally, and uh, it has to be figurative. It's got to be symbolic. And they determined that th- there, there were shades of meaning behind the symbolisms that you see in scripture. By the way, when they did this, most of the rest of the church said, that's heresy. Not true. That's heresy. That's what most of the church said. And uh, you know, you, you can read the early church writers if you want. There's a, there's a sampling of many influential um, church writers. Guys, you've never heard of. Capias, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Tertullian, Hippolytus, you know, they all held a pre-millennial view. Those are all names of people you've never heard of unless you're a Bible nerd, right? Wouldn't you agree you've never heard those names unless you're a Bible nerd? Of course, you've all now heard those names. <laughs> you're a bunch of Bible nerds. Anyway, so, so here's a quote from Papias. And you may want to know who on earth is Papias. Papias, tradition says, was mentored by John the Apostle. He was one of the students of the writer of the Revelation. He wrote it. Okay, so Papias wrote this. He said, There will be a millennium following the resurrection of the dead when the kingdom of Christ is to be established on the earth. Okay. Justin Martyr, one of the names I mentioned ahead uh, just before, said, he said, The city of Jerusalem will be enlarged and rebuilt just as the prophets Ezekiel have declared. Virtually all authorities believe that except those Gnostic heretics. So it was the predominant uh, viewpoint, uh, the premillennial view. Now, not everybody holds to that. Um, There is something called, number two, would be post-millennialism. Now, don't let these terms, they're big, long, fancy terms. Pre means before, post means after, right? So after the millennium, before. Okay, so post-millennium means Christ will return after we, um, God's people on the earth, Christianize the world. That's the concept. And when he comes back, 
when he does come back, it's not necessarily going to be for a thousand years. It's the idea that we're going to spread the gospel, you and me, and we're going to Christianize the world, and the world's going to get better and better and better. In fact, it's going to become so good that everybody's going to become a Christian, and when that happens, we'll start the kingdom, and Jesus will come and we'll present the kingdom to him. That's what post-millennialism basically believes. Now, um, this, this viewpoint was really popular in the 19th century, in the early um, 20th century. Um, the, the, the Industrial Revolution had been going on, and um, scientific advancements, and the standard of living of most people in the, in, in, the, in the world was going up quickly and dramatically, and so people were thinking it's getting better and better and better. Um, you know, hey, we're really doing this. We're really bringing in utopia. I mean, that was the viewpoint. It was very common. Now, it's not a very popular viewpoint today, so the fair question is, whatever happened to post-millennialism? What happened to that viewpoint? Well, World War I happened to it. The Great Depression happened to it. Influenza happened to it. Um, the Nazi Holocaust happened to it. And, and, and all of these catastrophic events made people start to go, wait a second. I'm not so sure the world's getting better. In fact, it doesn't feel like it's getting better and better and better. Maybe it's getting worse and worse and worse and worse. So today that viewpoint has not gone away completely. Um, it's been resurfaced and it's been repackaged and, uh, and, and it's called several different things. You might, if you've ever heard of dominion theology or kingdom theology or um, kingdom now theology or theonomy or constructionism, those are all different ways or titles for the same basic belief. It's the idea that we're going to take dominion over the church or the earth and establish the kingdom of God. So to do that, we're going to have to control institutions. We're going to have to control the White House and the Senate and the House of Representatives, and we need to be the rulers. We've got to do it. We need to be um, bringing the kingdom through the body politic, and, um, and when we do that, then we can present the kingdom to Christ. You know, I guess he needs our help. Now, don't get me wrong. I think we should elect godly people. I'm not going to tell you who to vote for. I'm just telling you, vote what the scripture tells you. <coughs> Let God guide you. If you want to please somebody with your vote, try to please Jesus, whatever that means. I'm not saying you don't try to vote, but, but this viewpoint, I think, that, I think that we should elect godly people, but I don't think that's going to save the earth. I will never look to our government to be our savior. It's going to be Jesus. Anyway, okay. The third viewpoint, and it's becoming increasingly popular today, is called the ah-millennial view. The word ah um, uh, in Greek just means no. Okay, so no millennium. There is no millennium. That's the third viewpoint. You can't take this literally. It's not really going to happen um, for a thousand years. It's all figurative. In fact, they say that the kingdom is actually happening right now. You are in the kingdom age. And uh, all, all of those Old Testament prophecies about the Messiah's kingdom are being fulfilled in the church right now. Jesus is ruling and reigning, and um, this is the kingdom. This viewpoint also says things like, you know, all of those promises in the Old Testament um, to Israel, that God gave to Israel about uh, literally having a kingdom and ruling from Mount Zion, that's all gone now. That's all out. They, th those things, those blessings only apply allegorically to us, the church. There's no throne of David. There's no literal Jerusalem that's going to be rebuilt. So this, this, basically, this viewpoint says, because this is a millennium, this is as good as it gets. If this is as good as it gets... I have to tell you, I am incredibly disappointed. 
This is absolutely, and if that's true, this is absolutely a case where the book is better than the movie. And I, I have this question too. If, if, if this is as good as it's ever going to get, why did God spend all of this ink in the book of the Revelation just to tell us what's not going to happen? It makes no sense to me. <laughs> so I, by, by, by now you've probably figured out that I'm a pretty staunch, um, pre, pre, uh, take a pretty staunch premillennial view, and I, I take a literal approach to the Bible. Literal. And that's the direction I chose when I got to the parting of the waters. And I, I spent some time getting there. And I, uh, because that viewpoint is assaulted continually in our culture. When you hear phrases like, science has disproved so many parts of the Bible, which is not true. And I could go on on that. That's like the mother of all rabbit trails for me. Don't get me started. What are you thinking? Okay, so... Um, anyway, so uh, I, I, I firmly hold this premillennial view and literal approach to the Bible. And th- why is that? Lots of reasons. Here, here they come. Number one, start with the simple ones, the chronology of the Revelation. It's a very pretty, pretty straightforward book. At the very beginning of the, the Revelation, there's this outline. It's, it's, you know, it talks about the things that were, the things that are, the things that will be. And um, there's this structure uh, and timeline, and you go right through it chrono- chronologically. Chapters 6 to 19 is all about the tribulation period, and uh, it's going to be the worst period ever to have happened on the earth. Um, and when you read that, you're going to agree, there has never been anything like that. It's the worst. It's just terrible. Um, chapter 19 talks about when Jesus comes back to the earth with his people to put an end to this huge battle. Um, so all of chapters 6 to 19 are pre-millennial, before, before the millennium. Chap- by, by the time we get to chapter 21, we discover that this present earth, which is tainted by sin, is completely destroyed, and God removes the earth, and he creates a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem, and that's called the eternal state. And sandwiched in this whole sequence, between all of that um, future history, between Revelation 6 to 21 and... Um, is, is a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth. And if you read plainly and chronologically, a premillennial view just fits with no problems. It's just simple. It just fits. Okay, second reason. Second reason for believing this is the early church believed in, in the future literal reign of Christ on the earth initiated by his coming. It wasn't until a bunch of people in Egypt decided, no, let's allegorize this whole thing. And, and people that were involved in that, you know, more names you don't know necessarily, Titus Flavius Clemens or, or Clements of Alexandria, another guy named Origen of Alexandria. Um, and you can read about these things. Then a couple hundred years later, a name that maybe you're more familiar with, um, Augustine or Augustine of Hippo, kind of crystallized this whole um, um, amillennial viewpoint. Th- th- and, that, and, and when that happened... The amillennial viewpoint became the dominant theology of the Roman Catholic Church. And then later, the Reformation, Protestant, Protestant Refor- Reformation. And men like Luther and Calvin bought into it, unfortunately. And, and so I, anyway, so I, I think um, the, the fact that the early church, that's what they held to, is a really compelling reason to take God's word literally. Um, and then here's the, the, the third reason, um, and to me, this is a very good one. It happens to be the best way to interpret the Bible, and I'm going to explain that. There's a, 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 a guy who's, um, who was a Southern Baptist um, evangelist, and now he's deceased. His name is Vance Havner. Here's how he said it. 
it's always easier to understand what the Bible actually says than to understand what somebody else thinks it meant to say. You ever had somebody come up to you and say, you know, yeah, I know it really says that, and um, it's pretty obvious what it is, but it doesn't mean that. It means this instead. And you scratch your head and you go, <laughs> How'd, maybe you don't laugh. How'd you get that? In your mind, you're, maybe you don't say it out loud, but you're thinking, what? Some people would suggest that we take parts of the Bible, literally, and, but not the parts that are prophetic, and not the parts that maybe seem too fantastic. We can just allegorize those. Um, yeah, and, um, you know, so I've heard those arguments, and I think, okay, what's your basis? How do you determine? What's the dividing line? Is there some sort of biblical instruction that tells you to take some things literally and other things not? I mean, there's not. And if not, there isn't. In fact, it's the opposite. The word talks about that. How is it that you or any human can determine when God didn't actually mean what he said? It's a really tough question, and it becomes very, very serious territory. In fact, the territory, that walk, that, that walk is really thin ice. In fact, there's really actually no ice there at all. Here are a couple of scriptures. Here's a New Testament scripture from Revelation 22. For I testify to anyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in the book. Okay, I'm already backing away from that. I don't want to add anything. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in the book. Listen, I'm very careful when I come up here and stand in front of you and say the word of God says something. But there's something, not that I'm le less careful anywhere else, but I'll tell you, when I, when I get to the Revelation, I'm careful to quote. If it says A, I put the word A in there. I don't slur. I try, <laughs> I mean, I'm very, very careful. And, th and by the way, this is not just the only time that God talks about this topic. You can go all the way to the other end of the Bible, too. De Deuteronomy, it's consistent. God feels this way. Deuteronomy 4.2, you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take away from it that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I commanded you. The, the problem is, when, you know, if you give yourself permission to allegorize, where do you stop? Do you call it allegory? Can you say something's allegory as opposed to taking it literally if it gets to the point where your personal faith has been taxed beyond its limit? Or do you have freedom to call it allegory when if you take it literally there might be some area of your life that you have to give something up that you want to hold on to or do something that you don't want to do do you, do you, do you allegorize because it takes away some level of accountability or responsibility to God that's when I would want to do it culture would say to you Modern science has disproven all these things. These have to be allegory. You know, and the first thing that they'll flip up constantly is evolution. Oh, science has proved it. <laughs> it has not proved it. It hasn't proved that. And I, I'm not going to go down that rabbit trail. I'm just fighting tooth and nail not to go down that one. If you want to talk about it, call me. We'll have a Coke. And for the next three days, we'll talk about it. Um, and I'm just telling you that the science has not disproved the word of God. In fact, the more you look carefully into objective science, the more it verifies God's word. 
It's amazing, the mathematics and so forth, but I'm, I'm starting down there. Back up, Terry. And anyway, so take, 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 time, take time to read on a variety of issues, and you'll find that science does more to prove God's word every day. Um, and by the way, I'm not talking here about people who are genuinely confused. The person who says, God, okay, you, you got to talk to me about Jonah and the whale. If I take that literally, I've got to believe that a guy lived inside of a fish for days. I trust you, God, but I'm, having, I'm struggling here. Help me. That's, God says, absolutely. That's really, God isn't just okay with that. He wants you there. If you have questions, he wants, I'm not talking about the person who has legitimate desire to be shown by the Lord truth. I'm talking about people who have closed their heart off and said, you know what, if I turn this into allegory, I don't have to be accountable. That's the, that's, that's the, that's the warning here. So I think the thing is this. We don't have to pick between the opinions of people when uh, Jesus has already given us a model on many of these questions. So let's just ask a simple question. Did Jesus teach about extraordinary Old Testament events um, as literal historical events? Did he do it? The answer is yes, he did. And uh, he, he taught, he verified the Old Testament accounts. This is a very, very brief list. But Jesus verified the Old Testament accounts of the, the Genesis version of creation, the Adam and Eve, about Adam and Eve and their son Abel. He verified Noah's story. He talked about the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. He talked about Moses and the burning bush. Manna, he talked about miraculous provision by God. He talked about Jonah. You know, um, and there are a lot of arguments in our culture that would say some behaviors and lifestyles are okay because the Bible's an allegory. They've got to, got to answer the question, why did Jesus call it a historical event? Anyway, so then, but then Jesus gets to the real point here. Now, he's, he's drilling down into our hearts when he says this in John chapter 3. If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And he goes further on, in John chapter 5. For if you believed Moses, you'd believe me. For he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The thing is this. When every person decides for themselves which scriptures are literal and which are fables, scripture becomes the word of man instead of the word of God. Here are some examples um, that I'll give you, and these are um, some problems for amillennialism and for allegory, um, for those who would say allegory. Anything prophetic in there is allegory. Joseph, uh, ask yourself this question about this. Is this, is this figurative or is this literal? Joseph gets vid- visited by uh, an angel, and he says this to him in Matthew one twenty one. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for, for he will save his people from their sins. Is that figurative? No. A literal baby was born. And his name is a historical fact. His name was Jesus. And he, he went on to save his people from their sins. Okay, here's another figurative or literal. Same topic. Same angel comes to Mary. You see this in Luke chapter 1. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the highest. Is that figurative or literal? Right? We just determined. That's, that's, that's literal, right? He really came. Same, same angel is still talking. He goes on. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob 
that's Israel, forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Hmm. Now, the one who wants to allegorize wants to stop the sentence in the middle and say, well, okay, we believe the first half is literal. The second half, it's all prophetic, right? This is all before any of this. The second half, that's just an allegory. That's figurative. There's, you know, yet the amillennialists will say, well, you know, the first part's real, the second part's allegorical. It fits the, the amillennialists' narrative to declare end times is allegorical. But to do that, I believe they have to butcher the text and they have to absolutely ignore the context. And that's terrible scholarship. I'm taking a pretty firm stance here. And I want you to know, just as a statement um, from the pulpit of this church, when we study the Bible, we use grammatical and historical and contextual and a literal interpretation of the word of God. I do not give myself permission to decide anything. That's not what God meant. And if it doesn't make sense to me, it's on me to study it out. It's not on me to say, well, God couldn't have meant that because I don't understand it. Or God didn't mean that because I don't agree with it. I don't give myself that permission. And I have stood up here before and said to you, I don't know. I'd rather say that to you than something that I absolutely can't have complete confidence in. So that, just so you know, that's how we teach here. And I believe there are lots of good churches that do that. Anyway, so I think that they should. If you ever pack up and move to Afghanistan or Iowa or anywhere else, and you're looking for a church, that should be the most important thing you look for. Do they teach the word of God? The word of God. Don't worry about whether it's pews or chairs. Figure that out later, okay? You know, I, I think um, all millennialism will depart from what I just described to you as how to approach uh, the word of God. And there are lots of churches in western Washington that do that. They're, they're involved in all kinds of things except the word of God. Remember all those promises um, that God offers in the Old Testament um, to, to Israel? You know, they, they, many of them were conditional. You know, it said, but God, basically God says, you know, if, if you keep my ways, you get to go into this land. But if you, if you don't, I'm going to boot you out. You'll pay for it. I'm paraphrasing. And what happened? They kind of departed, and um, did, did God mean it literally? Well, I can tell you what. He, they got booted out. They were in Babylon. He said it would be 70 years. They were there for 70 years before they got to come back. Literally happened. And there's all kinds of judgments upon Israel that you can see God saying, if this, then that will happen. And um, the, the, the ones who would allegorize would say, well, the judgments were for Israel, but the blessings are figurative, and therefore the church. I don't, I don't see how that works. I mean, I don't see how, how the bad stuff applies to the, the children of Israel, the good stuff we get. That does not make sense, doesn't make sense to me. If a thousand doesn't mean a thousand, what's it mean? Have you noticed, if you've spent time in the Revelation, it's full of numbers. I mean, there are seven churches, seven leaders of seven churches, 12 tribes, 12 apostles, they're all literal. Prophecy mentions a third of mankind. Then it goes on to say a fourth of mankind. There are two witnesses, 42 months, 1,260, not 1,259, 1,260 days, 144,000 of the tribes of Israel that be sealed. There are 12,000 furlongs, whatever that is. Um, it's a distance. Um, what do you do with all those numbers? If 12 doesn't mean 12, then what does 12 mean? 
If a thousand doesn't mean a thousand, what's so? And if you read this at face value, then there's this future real kingdom where the Messiah, Christ, will rule for a thousand years, just at simple face value. And that's how the early church took this. Okay, enough said. I think I've made my case on that. So, beyond the questions that we just covered, why the big deal about a thousand years? What's the, wh- why do we need that? What's the plan there? What's that all about? Well, there's something interesting in verse 3. And the angel cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set him. Remember the dragon getting tossed in there, Satan, the devil? So that he should deceive the nations no more. Or better put, I think a better translation would say, in order so that he would not deceive the nation. This is, and, and so it's necessary to get rid of the devil for a thousand years till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. Now, that's where I always scratched my head. You know, because once you caught the guy and you put him in the clink, why are you letting him out? Is clink okay to say? <laughs> I don't know if it is or not. But he's in jail. Why are you, throw, why are you letting him out? Okay. Well, talk more about that next time. <laughs> Come back to church. Um, just we don't have time to do everything today. Okay, so um, why the necessity for a thousand-year reign? Well, um, you know, why hassle with another thousand? Why not just go directly to the eternal state? Why the extra step? What's, what's going on here? Okay, I'm going to give you a few reasons. Number one, number one is to re- redeem creation from judgment. You've probably noticed that there's a curse on the earth. And that curse goes all the way back to uh, Genesis chapter 3 with the fall of mankind. And we have experiences with a cursed earth today. You hear about acts of God. They're not acts of God. They're the result of the curse. Earthquakes. This is my belief. Earthquakes, typhoons, landslides. The earth is cursed. It's not here to nurture life anymore. It's cursed. And things happen because the earth is cursed. It's not God going, hmm, there's too much joy in Tornado Alley. Let me spin my finger. Yeah, they call the tornadoes the finger of God. That's insulting. <laughs> it is. God's not going, hey, look at that barn go. We got cows. That's not God. Okay, that is not God. So but the earth is cursed. And, and beyond the curse triggered by sin, Revelation tells us that the earth will be really decimated a lot during the tribulation. I mean, a lot of bad stuff's going to happen. And I believe that the, that, that the millennium will be the answer to a 2,000-plus-year-old prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I think it's going to be, that prayer is going to be really, really fully answered. There's a story from the, the early days of the automobile where this guy was driving along in his Model T, and it, and it stopped on the road, and he couldn't figure out how to make it run. And he was cranking it, because you cranked your car to get it started back then. You don't... You didn't even have a key. You cranked it. And so he's cranking it, and it wouldn't start, and he advances the spark, and it wouldn't start, and he changes the spark plugs, and it wouldn't start, and you know he's doing everything he can. It will not start. And along comes a really nice, shiny, longer car, and um, it stops, and out steps this very nicely dressed man who says, can I help? And the guy in the car says, looks, him, looks at his clothes and looks at the shine of his car, and he says, <laughs> Sure, yeah, you, you're going to help. And so the, the nice gentleman kind of ignores that, and he goes over and he starts tinkering with the car. This is a true story. 
And he says, try it now. And the guy cranks it and goes. And the very nice gentleman says to him, well, hi, I'm Henry Ford. I designed this car. I know what makes them. I know how to fix them. There's only one person who knows how to fix the earth. And it's not any politician and it's not any party. It's only the one who made it. It's only the one who has the right and will judge it. He's the one who's going to remake it. By the way, no matter what you are going through, no matter what you are dealing with personally today, God and God alone can reconstruct what is broken and falling apart. And he can fix the things that are broken and that's what he does, that's who he is and you're his child and he loves you. Lean into the spirit of God and let the spirit move in your heart. Can I pray about that for just a minute? Lord, just while our hearts are waiting upon you, let it be said of us that we have more faith now than we did a minute ago. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Let faith rise in us, Lord, but Lord, would you touch us, touch your sons and your daughters. We're telling you right now where. In Jesus' name, amen. Can I plug something else too? At the end of our services, there are always leaders up here who are willing and desire to pray with you. And I trust these people. They're people of faith. If you want someone to personally pray with you, come and see them after church. Okay, so um, reason one to redeem creation from judgment. Another reason for the thousand-year reign, number two, all of God's promises to the nation of Israel have yet to be fulfilled. So if you're a reader of the Bible, you know in the Old Testament there are a whole bunch of promises, and uh, including that Israel's going to en- enjoy a, a time of unparalleled peace and unparalleled prosperity with the Messiah reigning from Jerusalem, and that's going to extend over the whole earth. And that hasn't happened yet, right? I mean... God promised the Jews a physical and spiritual, both a, a kingdom, and it's the millennium kingdom is the fulfillment of that promise, the earthly reign of Christ. Number three, finally, um, the millennial um, is essential because it's going to reveal man's rebellious nature. And we're going to get into more detail about this later but rebellion is, is, is not going to be allowed to flourish. It's going to be kept in check. Scripture describes this, and it says that those who rule and reign are going to do so with, Scripture says, a rod of iron. Now, here's the thing. Just follow my thinking, if, if you would. You don't need to rule and reign with a rod of iron if there isn't something that needs to be corrected. So justice will be, in that time, justice will be enacted swiftly. And um, it'll be dealt with immediately during Christ's reign on the earth. Um, people, people, we didn't read, we didn't haven't studied the whole book of Revelation, but people will survive the tribulation. There will be some that are allowed to, to, to come into the kingdom age. And there will still be present the possibility of rebellion and sin. And um, although it's going to be kept in check. And then after the millennium ends, Satan is going to be released for this period of time. And there will be a rebellion. And, it's gonna, and, and when that happens, it will prove um, something. It's going to prove something. All of this, this nonsense, well, if we just had the perfect environment. If, if, if it, I am the way I am because of how I was raised. I am the way I am because of what happened to me. It's not really my fault. It's your fault. 
Have you heard that argument? <laughs> you know, and the perfect environment of the millennium will, will, will just culminate in this rebellion, proving once and for all that, that, you know, that you can take the man out of the slum, but you can't take the man out of the slum out of the man. We have a sin nature in us. And there's only one person that can change the heart of anybody else, and that's Jesus Christ. Some people are going to follow him during that time, but there will be some present who will rebel against him, even after that season, that, that, that thousand years of perfection. And people have longed for utopia. Poets have written about it. Songwriters have sung about it. Politicians have promised about it. It's never going to happen until Jesus comes. I'm going to close with this. C.S. Lewis. He wrote this. If I find myself having a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If you're wondering, why am I not satisfied? I've, I've had relationships, I've tried experience after experience, and I'm still not satisfied. My answer to you is that you weren't made for this world. You weren't made for those experiences. God has put eternity in our hearts. And your relationship with Jesus and that relationship alone is what will scratch that itch. Let's pray. God, today, I want to thank you for the tenderness of your spirit to lead us and put our feet on solid ground at the same time, Lord, that you would remind us that you love us and you care for us and the things that we brought in with us. Lord, fill us with life and with faith in your precious name. We want to offer this time as a time of response and a time of uh, ministry.